Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Saqqara life. Also, please note we are recording from our homes via Zoom, so please forgive us for any sound issues. Dr. Sasha Hines is a developmental psychologist and life coach and an expert in positive psychology, lasting behavioral change, and the science of what she calls getting unstuck. In her private coaching practice, she helps women cultivate greater psychological flexibility and mental fitness to live a life that lines up with their values. Dr. Hines received her bachelor's from Harvard, her PhD in developmental psychology from Columbia, and her master's in applied positive psychology from the University of Pennsylvania. Whitney and I had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Hines on a panel that we all did together a little over a year ago now. And yes, she's incredibly accomplished, but what really resonated with, I think, both Whitney and I the most was just how authentic and vulnerable she was and willing to share her personal stories and that the work that she does now helping women you know, line up with their values and, and really create lasting fulfillment is really born out of her own struggles. And it's just so powerful to hear her story and to hear how motivated she is to help women in particular. I'm so excited for you all to listen to this episode. There were definitely some emotional moments as she and I have a lot in common as it pertains to eating disorders and our relationship to food. So for anyone out there that's listening that has an eating disorder just or has dealt with one in the past, just be aware there may be some, some triggers in here, but hopefully can listen and know it's a safe space and that we are all in this together. Well, hi, Sasha. So happy to have you here today with me. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. So fun. It's so nice that we've had a conversation beforehand. We've been on a panel together. What was that? Was that last year, year before was, that? Yeah, a little bit, a little over a year ago, which now seems like a century ago, but yeah. I know, <laughs> it really does. And the panel was like focused on body image and kind of our relationship to ourselves. And I loved hearing your story and, and your take on everything. So I'm really excited to have this conversation today. Yeah, everyone was so candid. It was a great conversation. Yeah. Well, the first question that we always ask is about your mission. So here at Sakara, we're very mission-driven, and it's what you know helps me stay motivated and wake up every day excited to do this work. So what do you feel like is your mission or your gift that you're, you're giving to all of us here on Earth? Oh, that's such a great question. I mean, I think that, you know, I would have originally said in my practice and the work I do as a coach is really to help women who put so much pressure on themselves, high achieving women to feel as good internally as their lives look externally, that there is a congruence between how they feel and sort of what they seem to be doing in the world. As I go deeper in my work um, with my clients, I mean, I think for me, it's really just about helping and seeing my clients become free and letting go of this sort of, you know, these tethers to identities that they felt they were supposed to have or heavy weights that they were carrying from childhood or, you know, different experiences that they've had and being able to release that and just seeing them sort of open up to their own creative force and their own vitality. And I just feel 
immensely lucky to do this work and um, be witness to women kind of re-giving birth to themselves in some Mm. way again. You know, it's just like, it is the most powerful. Yeah. It's so powerful. I feel so privileged to do it. Yeah. And what you said around kind of how one lives their life and how they feel about their life versus the expectations they set up for themselves. Can you talk about that rift and what it means to bridge that, that gap in your work? Well, I think actually a lot of people come to the work of self-development from a place of shame, Mm. actually. So like it's fueled by shame. And what I mean by that is like, okay, if I just eat perfectly exercise perfectly, have the perfect morning routine, have the perfect education, have the perfect family, have the perfect, you know, relationship with my husband or whatever your various boxes to check are in your life. If I can just do it all perfectly, be the perfect daughter and the perfect friend and the perfect professional, then I will give myself permission to like myself. I will give myself permission to feel worthy in the world. So I think a lot of people, they'll be perusing the books in the self-help aisle thinking, oh, this is the pathway. Like, I just need to be perfect to give myself permission to feel good enough. It's like, no, no. So that, you know, I think we, sometimes we arrive through that door and then get here and start to do inner work and recognize, oh, right. My worthiness was my birthright. This work is about truly unlearning, right? It's like an uncovering of who we truly are. Yeah. That just made me feel like it also takes the work of noticing what those things are. Cause I, I think oftentimes we can show up and, and drive toward outcomes and drive toward perfection and not even realize what those, you referred to them as checkboxes. As you're saying this, I'm, I know I have them, but I don't know if I could list them. And so the first thing to kind of unveiling or peeling back is yeah. realizing them, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, there's no wrong pathway. And I think, you know, this is sort of a constant perpetual awakening to some higher truth in my mind. But I think when you have this experience of you going after a goal or accomplishing something really big, and there is a promise in your mind, when I cross that finish line, either I will be fixed or I will feel a certain feeling or everything's going to be amazing and the sky is going to part and, you know, the angels descend and I'm going to feel awesome. (laughs) And then you, you cross that finish line or you accomplish that big thing. And I don't, you know, it could be becoming a mom or it could be getting married. It could be getting a big promotion, all sorts of things, athletic feats of some sort. And then you get there and you have this moment of, oh gosh, like this didn't fix it. Right. <laughs> I'm still here, here I am. Here I am with my human brain with a new set of circumstances. Mm. And what brought you to this work specifically? Because I, I find typically when I ask the question around mission, usually what brings us to our mission is, you know, we've been through some version of the dark side of what we're trying to bring to the world. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's me search <laughs> uh, for sure. I, yeah. I mean, I think that I have a pretty typical story of feeling an enormous amount of pressure to kind of be perfect in quotes, whatever that means. And to make my mom proud and happy and took a lot of that on and without really realizing that the standards that I had set or decided to set for myself were largely ridiculous and don't actually make any sense. You know, I mean, we're trying to be different in different arenas, like different versions of ourselves that actually don't make any sense. Like you can't be one and the other at the same time, like just doesn't work. Right. So just sort of feeling like I, I had the sort of, I had accomplished some of the big things that I felt were so important that were going to make me feel good enough and it didn't work which led to some despair, really. I just felt mm-hmm. like, oh my gosh, the promise was you go to the right, go to the best college that you can and all the things that you can accomplish, you know, win the, get the accolades and all the things. And then if you do these things, then the promise is then I get to feel good enough. Then I get to feel 
worthy and deserving. And then, you know, I got there and I was like, oh no, that didn't. <laughs> right. Didn't <laughs> the, fix it. The medal didn't confer some feeling of worthiness, unfortunately. And I'm so grateful that it didn't because, you know, I think it is that has brought me to this completely different journey and and one where I, I do feel like I get to live a life that is so much more real and authentic and creative and free. And, and that's what I wish for everybody. And it's like continual journey that way. But I just see so many women in, you know, and they're sort of in these gilded cages, like, yeah. you know, that there are so, so many rules around food or rules around like body or rules around the way they need to look or image. And and a lot of it can be unconscious, like not necessarily fully aware that they yeah. have created these bars on the cage. And a lot of them is messaging from more of outside the societal messages that we get. But to me, it's just this great, the work of sort of breaking free from that and really deciding on purpose, like, wait, what do I, how do I want to define myself? What matters to me? What are my values? And finding my own way in the world and getting to see women on that journey is just like the best thing. Yeah. And interesting at Sakara and specifically me, myself, I talk about this a lot because what brought me to this work was really my own relationship to food and, and my body. And so one of the things that we talk about a lot here is finding your why. Mm-hmm. And my why for the longest time was exactly what you're saying. My why was so that I can feel I need to be thin and you know I need to have the right body, the body that I imagine to be the right body, and then fill in the blank. Yep. And that was my North Star. And it continually and it like never failed to bring me despair. Mm-hmm. As you said, it never failed not to work. Like <laughs> it it never worked. It taught me, you know, how to count calories and points and carbs and pounds, and it never taught me how to build a body I felt really good in. Mm-hmm. So now at Sakara, we talk a lot about what is your why, and my why actually was I wanted to feel empowered in my body. I wanted to feel sexy in my body. Yes, and and by realigning my compass to that North star versus the North star of, you know, a a body size or a gene size or whatever it is, it helped me actually go after it because I had been going down the wrong path all along, reaching for the wrong star. Mm -hmm. And as you've said eloquently, it's like, once I get there, you know, there were diets that got me to a place where in my head I wanted to be, but one, they were never lifestyle choices. So I couldn't do it forever. So there was despair in that. And two, even when I was there, I never really felt good anyway. Right. So really reorienting to your ultimate why is so important. Even in, I was thinking about it and often do in terms of our, our food choices. But one book I I mentioned often is, I'm going to forget the name of it now. Anyway, she talks a lot about how even within sexuality, oftentimes women are driven by wanting to be desired. Mm-hmm. And I hear this in what you're saying too, which is oftentimes our North Star is actually what somebody thinks of us. Yeah. Instead of us kind of really going after how do we want to feel actually and not within the context of how somebody thinks about us or feels about us or feels towards us, but actually, can we just go out for our happiness ourselves independent of what people think? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we spend so much time as women controlling our appetites, right? I mean, like that's, Mm -hmm. so we're always trying to, we're sort of putting a lid on our desire and our appetites. So I think a lot of women are actually very disconnected from their sense of wanting, like, what do they truly so want? What are they yearning for? Like, what is their soul yearning to be and do this sort of a bigger, expansive experience of life? I try to delineate this with my clients. Like, there's a difference between having a growth goal, something that we're going after and trying to, something that you have in your sights that you want to achieve or do that is to expand you and grow you and and make your life bigger and richer and more interesting and sort of to see what you're capable of in the world, right? To lean into your potential versus what I call a perfection project. 
which is, you know, if I can just do these things, then I will be perfect. And then I can like myself, then I will be worthy or good enough. Right. So I think often we confuse the two. It's like, Mm. what's the difference between, there's a big difference between going after something because you love yourself enough to give yourself permission to want something more. Right. Versus like, okay, I just need to do all this box. Yeah. Whoever this is, I need to perfect her so then I can feel good enough. It's like, it's going about it in the wrong, you know, not in the wrong way. It's just in a way that is never going to lead to feeling the way I think people really want to feel. Right. What are the psychological reasons why women feel so much pressure to be whatever the version of perfect is? Because there's something about when you, you, when you talk about perfection, there's something I actually really, I at first was like, no, I don't, I don't know if I put that pressure on myself, but of course I do. Like, it's not, I'm not necessarily, Whitney's really the one in terms of making sure she needs everything to be really perfect. She likes to really take her time and really think about things where I'm more like, wait, this is great. Let's put it out there. And Mm -hmm. I'm more like curial and like things to move really quickly. So we really balance each other out. But within the, that practice of being mercurial and liking things to move quickly, I don't have a real grasp on perfection, but then I have, I use different words. It's like, I have these different standards for myself that I believe right. I need to, you know, adhere to. So why do you think we, we have that as women? And do you find that it's more women than men? Well, I think that at the heart of perfectionism, like if we're talking sort of about the tendency to, to sort of if it's not that needing to seem perfect or needing to seem like squared away or got it together in the world, but it's really at its root about shame. It's like, I'm afraid that if it isn't perfect, that I'm going to be judged for it. And so often along with being a perfectionist comes a lot of hiding Mm. because, right, I'm not going to be willing to put my humanness out into the world. No, thank you. So the alternative is I either do it very, very well, or I don't do it at all. Mm. So for all of you perfectionists out there, like if you are procrastinating, that makes sense to me, right? Right. When you're dragging your heels on something and you're like not putting it out into the world or not doing it, or you have this idea that you, you know, would like to start a business or you want to go back to school or, you know, whatever the thing is, and you're not taking action on it. So often sort of at the root of that is a feeling of, of shame, right? It's like this, this, like, I'm going to be found out. The real me is going to be exposed. And if people saw the real me, the messy me, the imperfect me, the human one, then I'm going to be ostracized or I'm going to feel alienated. So, you know, I think it's really the shame at its core. And is there also a level of needing to please that falls into that too? Like you mentioned your mother, you know, mm-hmm. wanting to like make sure that she was proud of you. Like, is that something that you typically find with women more than men too? Is that need to please? Well, so women have a different biological response to a threat. So there is, you know, obviously fight or flight and we have this cortisol rush and we feel threatened and then we fight, flight or freeze. And so that's one way that we handle an imminent threat, right? So that we get like a a surge of sort of like aggressive, either we get aggressive or we like, you know, have a cortisol rush to run away, right? But women do this other thing that men don't do, which is we also tend and befriend. So when women are stressed, one of the things that women do is we tend to our, we are the caregivers, right? So if you think about, you know, try being threatened, right? And they need to run. They're being threatened by some other, you know, invading group. You can't just cut and run. You got little kids to take care of. You have babies, right? Mm -hmm. Toddlers, like little guys. So women have this other urge, which is I'm going to tend to and take care of, right? And also befriend in community, their safety and numbers, right? There's other women who can look after this defenseless child. So interesting. I've never heard anyone describe this, but it makes so much sense and resonates so much. 
Yeah. Women in the group are not like, oh, hey, see ya. I'm hightailing <laughs> right. out of here. <laughs> I'm out, right? No, they're like, I got to take care of these, these little guys, you know? So I think women are, they're grooming, they're tending to each other. They're making sure that everybody else is okay. And I think that this is, you know, hardwired into, biologically hardwired into the way that we are. So interesting. And you have, you have a master's in applied positive psychology. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? What does that mm-hmm. mean exactly? It sounds great. Positive psychology. Great. I know we should all be positive psychologists. <laughs> it's just a field of psychology that focuses specifically on well-being. So understanding sort of if we're thinking about the spectrum of the human experience, we're looking at positive emotions. Why do we have them? How do we cultivate them? What mm. What's the purpose? We spent so much of our time in the field of psychology. So much of the research dollars have been, it makes sense, right? Sort of like this triage approach. Like I, we need to tend to the acute person, which makes all the sense in the world. But there's just, I think, you know, because of that, there's just been more of a focus on disease disorder and dysfunction as opposed to why is life worth living? Right. Like, I think that's a great question, (laughs) right? That we don't. And actually in the field of psychology, it hasn't been, I think it used to be historically like Maslow and William James and other psychologists spent more time in thinking about self-actualization, like really, truly transcending. Um, What does it mean to transcend as a human? And because there are these other peak experiences, spiritual peak experiences, athletic peak experiences, like watching, you know, or being in an audience when someone is, you know, a a juoso pianist and it's, it takes you to this other place. So, sorry, this is a long-winded way of saying that positive psychology is focused on sort of what's right with the humanity and um, human beings and humans at their best. And trying to unpack that, not just on an individual level, but on a community level as well. And now for a quick break, we wanted to take a moment to tell you guys about one of our newest Sakara products, the Foundation, which is a packet of your daily essential supplements. All Sakarified, so to speak, meaning completely clean, plant-based, bioavailable, and coming from whole food sources. Lots of times people think that supplements are just pills that you take, but really you should use the same level of scrutiny and standards that you would for your food. So these supplements are not only incredibly effective, but also incredibly clean. After taking them just for a couple of weeks, you'll feel increased energy, better digestion, more restful deep sleep, brain clarity, and boosted immunity. And we like to think of this as our nutritional insurance. So yes, first and foremost, you want to get your nutrients from the foods that you eat every single day. But if you are a Sakaralite, which we know you are since you're listening, you know that we believe in eating clean and playing dirty, that None of us are perfect, nor would we want to be. Sometimes life gets in the way. And even though I get Saqqara food delivered to me every week, some weeks I just don't eat as well as I wish I I could have. And so this is a great way to make sure you're getting all of the essential nutrients you need to feel and look your best. And for all of you Saqqara lights out there right now, we're gifting you $15 to use towards your first purchase of the foundation. Just use podcast. 15 at checkout on sakara.com. And we put a lot of love and work into creating these supplements over the past three years at least. So we hope that you love them just as much as we do. Enjoy. Okay, let's get back to the episode. Where do you think we got the idea that we were supposed to just be happy all the time? What I hear when you're saying that is, I think in uncovering the human experience, we also have to admit that we've been fooled into thinking that seeking pleasure and happiness all the time is our North Star and what we should be reaching for. And that it's actually the struggles and 
finding our, our limits and working through them and past them and trauma, et cetera, that we should be reaching for? Or I don't, I don't know. I, I'm, I guess I'm asking you, I don't know the answer. Like, what should we be reaching for if not happiness and pleasure? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think you you hit upon something really important. I mean, happiness is sort of an anemic word and feeling. I mean, sure, everyone's like, I would like to be happy. But when you really dig a little bit below the surface, do you really just want to be happy? No, no, no. And this is what like the universally as parents were like, we, you know, people say, what do you want for your kid? I want them to be happy. But that's not really what you want for your child. What we really want as human beings to have it's like thinking about a symphony, you know, do you want your, your, a two note symphony? Mm. No, you want the full range of experience, right? The, the, the highs, the lows, the flats, the sharps, all of the, the, you know, you want it to be layered and textured and, and interesting and complex, right? So I think that more than anything, it's really about having a life of, that feels meaningful, that in and in some way, you know, I think one of the the components of well-being is obviously positive emotion or positive affect. So feeling good is a piece of it, but so is being engaged. So feeling like you're fully engaged in what you do and you find you're deeply interested in something. That is a component of it, positive relationships and relationships are very complicated, right? So there's (laughs) good relationships have so much complexity to them. And then there's meaning, purpose and meaning is a huge piece of well-being and also achievement as well. And, you know, there's a life of meaning and possibility of like leaning into one's potential and seeing what what you're capable of accomplishing in your life or doing and fully expressing your sort of creative force in the world requires overcoming obstacles and challenges and setbacks. Like it is not all fun all the time. It can be incredible, feel incredibly hard. So, you know, I think we have this sort of like shorthand language of like, oh, I just want people, you know, I just want to, I want to be happy and I want my kids to be happy, but that's not really true. Right. I mean, I wish my children, I know this sounds nuts, but like, I wish my children to grieve. Mm. Why? Because grief is joy inside out. Because if they grieve in their life, that means that they've experienced joy and love at a profound level. So what I want for them is to have the full human experience. And that is, I think the scariest work of being a parent is to be willing to allow the people in your life to be present to all of it. So beautiful. It actually makes me think, you know, that, that our work is, and sounds like in my own words, what your work is, is helping us build the tools to experience all of those emotions and ups and downs and and the, the symphony of life. Because usually when bad things come our way, coping mechanisms or pharmaceutical drugs or you know, all of these things and, and not to say any of those are bad, but it's actually, can we cultivate the tools that help us fully just surrender and experience and count that as a, as a blessing too? Yeah. I mean, ironically, it's it, whether it's intense, sort of what we would typically call like a negative emotion or a difficult emotion or an intense, expansive or positive emotion, I think people struggle with feeling either end of that spectrum. Mm, do you like fall in this dangerous middle zone? Yeah, or it's a kind of like banal middle zone when people are like, my life feels kind of meh. It's like, that's right. Because we don't want to feel those other feelings. They feel too threatening. So we're going to stay in this little middle ground where we feel just like, you know, a little bit of an anxiety and like maybe mixed in with some amusement and good, you know, but in general kind of staying in that like a more, you know, a narrower band in terms of the emotional spectrum, we're relegated to that sort of like middle ground because we don't want to feel bad, but we also then blunt the ability to feel really intensely good. Right. And then, and like have the delicious experiences of life as well. So true. And then it's back to that idea of, well, I can't feel really sad because I'm not a sad person and I'm supposed to be 
this other person, this other persona mm-hmm. that, yeah. that I've created. Yeah. I mean, I definitely grew up, I think like many did in families that, you know, emotions fe- seemed very scary. We don't do those things. We <laughs> we don't go there. We soldier on and move forward and like, let's not talk about that and pick yourself up, let's go. And so feelings, emotions were sort of like this other language that I didn't even really know how to speak in. I didn't know how to feel the, you know, experience emotion really. So then you become very proficient at avoiding feeling any emotion, avoiding feeling feelings. And then we have eating disorders or disordered eating and obsessing about things that don't really matter. And we create drama or other things to like what I call emotional Novocaine, whether that's, you know, overeating, overspending. I mean, in some cases, undereating, right? Obsessing about being compulsive about food, whatever it is, numbing out to certain things. And so we sort of, you know, numb our experience of life because it feels too threatening to us. But, you know, I think what some of the most hopeful news is emotions really just come in little waves. You know, they're 90 second biochemical waves. And with the more you open up to them, the less scary you experience them as like, like they're not, there are monsters that we've shoved in the closet. It's like once we open the door and bring them out of the dark, we recognize like, oh, it's not a monster. It's like monster zinc, you know, it's this cute right. little, <laughs> fuzzy. yeah, it's not that bad. You know, I can handle this. And I think the more expansive our life gets, it really is about the task of being willing to feel emotions. And that's really what it's about. That's so interesting. And I'd love for you, if you're open to it, I remember when we were on the panel together, you talking about your own eating disorder mm-hmm. and you know, I was never clinically diagnosed, but I definitely had disordered eating patterns and a disordered mm-hmm. relationship to food. And, and that's so interesting to hear that that was like repressed emotions. I never really thought about it in that way. It always felt like more around my desire to be worthy, which it was, but it also was repressing so much along the way because I had, I fooled myself into thinking I was in control in some way. Mm -hmm. Right. When we can do things to create this sort of illusion of control in a, in a rather uncertain world. I mean, we don't control that much. I think this year has really made that clear. (laughs) Um, I think that if you think about your relationship or one's relationship with eating and food, it's about nourishing oneself, right? So um, when we have a dysregulation with our ability to nourish ourselves, mm. you know, it, that's so much of that has to do with this, like, I'm not, I'm not able to nourish myself and be there for myself when I'm experiencing whatever the emotion may be, disappointment, grief, sadness, anger, but also could be also on the other end, like joy, like some sort of awe transcendent experience as well. Like mm. something that feels very, a big emotion, but on the sort of more, you know, positive end of the spectrum. And can you talk a little bit about your journey with yeah. eating disorders? Yeah. So, I mean, I, it's funny cause I didn't grow up, you know, so I think I work with so many clients that have, you know, they're like, I was on an, Weight Watchers at 12 or whatever, 11. And um, I didn't have that experience. I think I didn't really even think about my weight or my body at all. Frankly, I was athletic and sporty as a kid. And I never really had any thoughts about, I had a body. I didn't really think (laughs) about it, to be honest, until I was a teenager. So, you know, in those sort of early teen years, like 14, 15, I started really like noticing that, okay, I have this female body and, you know, you go through puberty and all things change. But I think for me, it was sort of like this perfect storm of a difficult time in my family. And I think the pressure I put on myself to somehow like fix that or make that right or make it better, heal things or fix things by, in my own mind, like doing well, like not being a burden and succeeding. So at least they could feel good about that, right? So I think that was this perfect storm of that happening. And then also it's taken me a long time to say these words out loud. And I 
don't normally talk about it because I find people get triggered by it, but a teacher who molested me. So we have these two perfect storm of things happening at the same time. And I had a terrible eating disorder, started with anorexia and then sort of transferred into bulimia, which the bulimia was probably for like seven, you know, really seven years it took over as the primary addiction. But the, my nonsense with food was epic, you know? I mean, and I hid a lot of it and tried to hide a lot of it. But for me, it was just this like constant battle. I couldn't think, I couldn't, nothing existed outside of my relationship with food. And yes. it just breaks my heart. I mean, I, I am so grateful for the freedom that I have now. The journey getting here has been a long one and just breaks my heart when I look and see so many women whose life is relegated to this, like to the confines of chatter about food in their head all day. Like yeah. it's just not okay. There's a bigger life out there. There are things that we need to do in the world. There's voices that need to be heard. It's just like, how did we end up here where women are just what's occupying our mind 90% of the day? It's things to do for other people and food. I know you're making me cry. It's like, it's, <laughs> I try and make light of it sometimes when I think about how much time I spent thinking about food for so much of my life. And I'm (laughs) all the things I could have done, like talk about relegating yourself to a very confined, like emotional experience. It's like you're in this spectrum that's like a centimeter wide and it's, Mm -hmm. but it's also like high highs and low lows. So, you know, you're on this wheel, but it's, it's really, it can feel like just, such a jail and the feeling of unworthiness and shame. It's like, what were my, sometimes I wonder like, what were my inputs that ever made me feel like that's where I deserve to live? Mm -hmm. Because they must've been really powerful and really resonated with me for me to not only like hear them, but then take them on as my own story. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that eating disordered or disordered eating of any sort is an what we call an internalizing problem. So like an externalized issue would be like an alcoholism or a drug addiction mm. that's we've externalized our, our rage, right? That's like an externalized, our internal pain being externalized. But for a lot of women, the way that they cope with their emotional pain is to internalize it. So we're taking it out on ourselves And I think about so much of that for women, especially with food is really comes down to feelings of shame and unworthiness and taking that out and punishing oneself really for it. So as you heal, it's like these sort of layers being removed from and then returning to oneself and being able to really nourish, have a nourishing relationship with oneself, like wholesale nourishing, right? Nourishing in terms of I'm willing to be with myself, whatever the feelings are. I'm not, I'm, I've got my own back. Like I'm not going to leave myself. Mm, right? totally. I've got, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to hold my own hand through whatever the experience is. Like whether it is feeling, having a wave of shame, like that happens all the time. Right. And I'm like, and I do the work of being with myself being like, Oh, there it is. <laughs> Hello, shame. Right. I feel you like a electric wave rolling across my body. And I'm just going to experience feeling it as opposed to what I would have done 20 years ago, which is like, absolutely. Like I cannot feel this feeling. It's to, it's unbearable. And so, you know, disconnect. And the way that I disconnected was using food to do that. I just have to tell you, it's, it's really powerful to hear you speak on this because it's one thing to kind of have the accolades that you, that you have and, you know, using air quotes here, but, you know, to be an expert in this field, but the way you, you bring such a level of authenticity and heart to this when you're speaking that like, it's resonating for me in ways that, you know, as I was preparing for this podcast that I couldn't have even imagined. And so just thank you. Cause it's, it's so lovely to be able to have these candid conversations about taboo topics. Like it's, that shame and that shockwave that you just referred to is so real. And even though I've done so much work to, I don't even know what the word is here, the verb is here, release or work through the guilt and the shame of 
my disordered eating patterns, you know, that was a huge chapter of my life. Mm-hmm. And yeah, me too. I don't think it ever goes away fully. Like I don't ever find myself there anymore because I've learned, and you've used this word a lot to have learned to nourish. And I've learned that it feels so much better to nourish and to feel and to not live in that jail. But that was still a part of, of who I was for so long that hearing you even speak to it now resonates so much. Yeah. So thank you for your candidness. Oh, it's yeah. so beautiful. And especially like in the context of your expertise. Well, I just think that there's so, I went through a 12 step program and which saved my life. No doubt about it. I was going to ask you, like, how did you get out? I read a book by a woman who had also gone to the same college. I had actually gone to the same grade school that I had and was an athlete and was right. It was a memoir about her recovery from bulimia. And at the time, you know, this was like late nineties. I didn't really know. Nobody really talked about it very much. Like there was like an after school special kind of situation in high school where they'd be like, hey, let's have an hour long video on eating disorders. But it wasn't, there wasn't a conversation really about it. So it was something that was still kind of, I don't know, we just, I just didn't really know anyone who had had any long-term recovery from, you know, I know people that had been alcoholics and stopped drinking, but I'd never really had any model of someone who was like, yep, I've been in recovery and successful recovery for decades. Like that didn't, I didn't know that person. So anyway, I read this book was called My Name is Caroline by a woman named Caroline Miller. And on the dust jacket cover, it said, you know, she had her bio and it said, you know, she was a coach. And I was like, what is this thing? A life coach, you know, like, what is that? I don't even know what that is. So I called her, but wasn't really ready to do the work yet. She was like, you have to be totally honest with me. And, you know, here's what we're going to do. And I was so terrified because I still was like, no one's taken this eating disorder from me. You know, it's mine. So she was like, here's what we're going to, here's the things we're going to do. And I, I mean, I basically just hung up the phone, you know? So I was like, "Eh, thanks. Bye. You know, click. But in the book, she had talked about going to 12 step program for her eating disorder. So that was kind of new news to me. And then I, still was doing like white knuckling it. Like I can do this on my own. I can, I can solve this problem. Like I'm just going to go to yoga classes now or whatever. (laughs) Like I'm going to, you know, fad food thing. And then that's going to solve it. None of it did. It was all very messy. And so none of it really worked. And then, you know, she'd kind of planted the seed in my mind of like, well, there is this thing called a 12 step program and you can get a sponsor and you could do it. You could try it. So my last year in college, I joined a 12-step program and got a sponsor and had was so embarrassed, you know, the whole thing. I was like embarrassed to be there, but I was also desperate enough to be in those rooms. And it was like a shame slaying experience. Like that's what I'm saying to my clients. I'm like, we're shame slayers. Like it really was being in a room of women who are all talking about their messy behaviors and the things that they think and the unmentionable things that like floated around my head, but I never told anyone and being able to be in a room with people and actually say that stuff out loud, that in and of itself had its own healing properties, you know, just gave you permission. Totally. Like it took my dark world into the light and in that, in those rooms and with the the support of my sponsor and, and just committing to that process and, believing in these women, you know, like believing that they would say to me, you know, I've been you, I've been down. I I know you are, you know, you're angry with your arms crossed in the back of the room, but I promise you it gets better. I promise you life will get better. And I just, you know, believing that they knew something that I didn't know yet. And, you know, a year and change later, I ended up calling Caroline back and saying, all right, I'm ready. I'll do whatever, you know, I'm ready to do the work. I really believe my life can be better than this. My life was meant to be, you know, about something more than the like list of what I had eaten that day or the day before and the way that my life had become so small because of food. I was like, I'm done with this. I really don't want to live like this anymore. And working with her changed my life. And it was from that experience. And I think because I had been an athlete as a kid. And so I got this relationship, like the coach 
you know, coach athlete relationship. Like she pushed me harder than a therapist did. She wasn't going to let me get away with, she's like that. She called me on my BS, you know, she's like, that's, that's nonsense. Like, yeah. And I loved it. Like, I just, it's like, because it felt to me, her calling me on my BS was like someone believing in me. Mm. She's like, you're better than this. Your life is bigger than this. Come on. Like, I, you know, I've got you, I'm here for you. So from that day on, I, this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to, I wanted to be a coach. I never wanted to be a therapist. I wanted to be a coach and I, which is, I'm, I think I'm the anomaly, but, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's, what would you say is the main difference? Because I, I also work with a coach and it's so powerful to just, I appreciate the work so much because I can't get away with anything in our conversations and it's so painful. <laughs> and some days I just, I'm like, I really just don't even want to talk to her today. <laughs> like I don't, I don't want to work through some of this stuff. Like, no, sometimes it is my husband's fault or, you know, whatever or whomever I'm blaming that day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not to say my time in, in therapy in the past has not been helpful. It certainly has, but wherever I am right now, I've certainly found the coaching to be just leaps and bounds kind of more impactful in my day to day. Yeah. I mean, I think there's sort of this like messy middle, like what's a therapist, what's a coach, you know, and sort of distinguishing the two. But I would say that there is, I I really think therapy and healing wounds and, and processing trauma is like, please find a trauma-informed therapist and do that work. Everyone experiences some degree of trauma. Trauma is my brilliant colleague, Britt Frank describes it as brain indigestion. It's not something like you, it's not an event. You know, it's just like you just, something happened in your life and it continues to happen where things are too big for us to metabolize, right? It's Mm. like, it's like, too much, too, what she says, like too much, too little, too soon, not enough. You know, like those are the experiences that create for people that can be traumatic. So seeking someone out like Brit, who is trained to help people process trauma, I think is so essential. And so, you know, I, I really want to say, like, I think that that work is so I, I collaborate with her and do workshops with her as well. So, you know, I think that Uh, doing that work is so important, but the work for me as a coach is really leaning into your future and saying like, okay, who is your future you? Who's your future self? Like, I want you to actually just think about it. You know, I think so much as we're trying to sort of heal the past and heal our wounds from the past, it's so important. But I also want to hold that torch for, but who are you becoming? Who do you want to be? Who's the future you in 10 years that you're walking out to meet her? Mm. what is she doing? What is, you know, what's her life about? And I think it's just, we just don't think about that enough. I don't think we're encouraged to dream in that way and, and like really truly explore who we want to be in the future. And I, that was what my coach did for me. It was like training and she's training me for the future. You know, it's like helping me train for the future. Like, what do you, what do you need to master now so that you can be, you want to be in 10 years? Well, it's so powerful. And I feel like I could talk to you for (laughs) another hour on this stuff, but I feel like that's a beautiful place to ask you about light work. Mm -hmm. And I'm so curious to hear what your light work will be for all of us. It's so interesting because I think so much of what I would describe as light work is being someone who does this work to help people heal and move forward in their life is also about being willing to just dive into that darkness too. And, you know, really lately been thinking about how there's the diurnal, the day, the light, and then there's this nocturnal and the dark and we dream in the dark. So, you know, we can't, we have to be willing to bring, call back in and look at this, the unmentionable parts. And like what I've shared today, I mean, good golly, like there were decades of my life where I wouldn't have never told, I mean, in a public forum like this, like I would have been... shame spiral afterwards. Like, what are people going to think about me? And oh my gosh, because they felt like unmentionable things. Being a bulimic felt unmentionable to me. 
no one wants to talk about that. Like, well, who wants to admit that they were doing that that was their story? Mm-hmm. So the light work to me is about holding that darkness and being willing to look at it and being willing to call back and embracing all of our unmentionable parts, our unmentionable stories, the parts of us that we think we need to annihilate, but we don't. That is so powerful. I love what you said that we dream in the dark. It's like we, you can remember those times in your life where you've been scared of the dark, literally, or as a child, you've been scared to fall asleep and fall into dreamland. But that's such a beautiful reminder that, that that's, that's where we dream, mm-hmm. that there's yeah. so much light in, in surrendering and letting the dark be part of like the holistic picture of who we are. Yeah. You don't need to cut off. So many women are trying to fix themselves or destroy a part of themselves that they think is out of control or too big, too much. It's like, they just want to annihilate it. It's like, no, the, the work is really to welcome the, all of that back to the table. Thank you so much. This was such an important conversation. And I hope there are a few people at least that will hear this and feel like maybe their darkness isn't, isn't so scary. You're not alone. Thank you so much, Sasha. Thank you so much for having me. It's so fun. If you have a Sakara story that you would like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at sakarastories at sakaralife.com. That's S-A-K-A-R-A-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at sakaralife.com or send us a DM at sakaralife. Don't forget to hit subscribe for the Sakara Life podcast and share this episode with anyone you think needs to hear what we talked about today. And don't forget about the light work. It might feel a little hard, a little uncomfortable, but it's supposed to. The whole idea is that we lean into what's uncomfortable so we all get to shine our lights a little brighter. And we'll see you on the other side, Sakara Lights. <laughs> <laughs>